0: Hey everybody, welcome in. David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. This is the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Stud. Please welcome the originator of the Studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee Stud, ron fuller. What's going on my man ron
1: Oh man, doing great. Had a big Thanksgiving. Uh enjoyed it. Just ready to get back into into the ride, my man. In fact, uh, I want to start today um with uh, a little disclaimer, I guess I'll call it. I really thought that I could have possibly been the first to do the Thanksgiving wrestling shows, but I've had a couple of different uh places I've looked and uh and people have turned me on to certain sites, and I found that probably they were doing it in the Carolinas, which doesn't surprise me. Uh, Jim Crockett Sr. was pretty much way ahead of his time, uh, and he was doing it far back as into the 60s, and I think there were occasions, a few occasions, that they, they were even doing it in Vern in, uh, territory in the AWA up there in uh, Minneapolis uh, a few times uh, in the early 60s as well. So I didn't have the very first uh, Thanksgiving wrestling show but uh, <laughs> but we we had a darn good one I, I'll I'll put it that way. We Actually too have- and uh, and I noticed I was going to say as time goes on and we go back in Continental we get Continental started up we go back into Knoxville we're going to run two Thanksgiving shows for about 3 years in a row there starting about 80 85 and in the same day and, uh, it's exactly the same card and it's the same wrestlers. And we're going to drive 250 miles between those two towns. Uh, and we're going to have one at three o'clock in the afternoon and one at eight o'clock that night. So wow. um, it's a pretty busy day for us.
0: But, That's uh, pretty awesome. Let me say we would not have been surprised had you been the first you've had so many first along your career. So anyway, all right, listen, as we get ready to Get on board and take the ride. Let's mention TNstud.com. That's TNstud.com. It's where you start your Christmas shopping for the ultimate wrestling fan on your list. Autographed photos of the stud, you can get those right now. T-shirts in black and blue. Autographed copies of Ron's new novel, Brutus an incredible and historical DVD collection loaded with matches and interviews from the Continental and Southeastern wrestling days. TNstud.com is the Stud's home on the internet. Better order now so you can make sure you get them in time for Christmas. And and Stud, you do have a lot to check out at TNstud.com in the store over there, right?
1: Oh yeah, my man. Uh, we got quite a few things on there and uh, and I'm glad you threw in that last part. It's getting pretty close to Christmas and it won't be too long here to, before you might not be able to get it by Christmas, but I think no. uh, those that are listening to us today and in this next week are going to have an opportunity to go ahead and order and get their stuff before Christmas. And, uh, and uh, yeah, we've got a lot of stuff in the stud store, and I'm really, really uh, pleased uh, to have all the fans I've got, and uh, and we we'll have been getting a lot of orders. Uh, things have been going very well in that store. And, uh, thank you everybody out there who supports me, uh, in that way. And, I uh, really appreciate it very much. And, and I, I guess Dave, if you're ready, uh, I'm saddled up. I bet you are too. And, uh, I'm ready to ride. If you are my man,
0: I am mounted up. We are ready to go. Where are we taking off to today, Ron?
1: We're going to begin with our today's training. And this one is going to be very different than most of these, uh, today's trainings. Uh, actually it involves one of the most, uh, Horrible jobs in all businesses, and uh, this is usually for the owners of businesses for sure, it's the the firing of employees. And obviously, the owner's hat's going to be worn today, as we are going to discuss for the, the first firing for me in my career of a wrestler and why it happened and how it happened. And uh, this unique today's training, uh, which is a weekly segment for us, focuses on the responsibilities of the man at the top of a wrestling territory. Uh, so then we're going to wrestle with the first week of uh, December, 1976 and review another great card from December the 3rd in Knoxville's Chi Park to is going to be in my corner. I'll be facing Ronnie Garvin for only the second time in Southeastern history. The great Bob Armstrong returns to Southeastern. Uh, there's four Cadillac matches on this outstanding card. The exciting TV of Saturday, November 27th, we're going to go in great detail about one match specifically. And it uh, obviously promotes that card of December 3rd. So then the results, we're going to give the results of the card, and we're going to move a little bit closer to the end of that year for Southeastern 1976, which is a record year for me, especially at that time. So, the Learning Tree today is going to feature a great story about my dad and his only trip with me to Harlan, Kentucky. Uh, and this event comes at the result of two very good questions about Southeastern spot shows. And that's the basic subject matter for the Learning Tree. This Learning Tree is going to give everybody a real feel for what it was like to wrestle in one of the most dangerous places on earth. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> you know, I mean, Uh, It kind of sounds like a joke, but uh, believe me, (laughs) when guys went there, uh, it was no joke.
0: (laughs) Wow. All right. It sounds like another great one. All right. And listen, you said something about somebody getting fired. I can't wait to figure out who that is in today's training,
1: right? Uh, Well, yep. Uh, It ain't going to be long, Dave. Uh, We're going to jump right on that. Uh, You know, we're saddled up. Uh, Let's Let's roll here. Uh, So this is where we begin. About three weeks before Christmas in the year 1976, uh, I'm going to experience a very difficult thing for a soft-hearted, inexperienced, 28-year-old territory owner. You know, uh, this is a very serious situation for me. It requires a very difficult decision to be made by me. Uh, In this today's training, we're going to put on that most important of all hats the one worn by the man at the very top of every company. That owner's hat, where all the toughest decisions are made in wrestling and and in all other businesses of any kind, it doesn't make any difference what kind of business you run. If you're the man at the top, it's not an easy job. And uh, this is probably one of the most difficult parts of that job. This one involved one of my key employees. And it takes us back in early December of 1976, uh, a wrestler that I was highly dependent upon. It uh, kind of helped maintain the great momentum we'd created over the past few months and uh, to still continue to build uh, toward the future. So, early in the 1970s, wrestling and wrestlers had very few drug problems. It, it was not a big thing in the 70s. And I had been wrestling for six years at this point in 1976, and I had only encountered drugs in one place that I had been in the in the world, and that was uh, in Australia, 1971 and 73. I never really saw any wrestlers in those crews uh, doing anything, but I heard some of the guys in the crew talking about it, uh, and it was going to become a much bigger problem for all owners of territories less than 10 years down the road by 86 it's going to be a real problem for wrestling promoters motors around the world uh, for me this is my first encounter with it and uh, for a young man like i said i'm only 28 years old and i'd never done any drugs and uh you know i was an owner of a wrestling company it was extremely serious business this thing so you know, I always had a great relationship with the wrestlers that worked for me. Most of them started wrestling about the same time as I did. I knew a lot of them that did. And uh, later, a lot of those guys came to work for me. Uh, guys like Ronnie Garvin, uh, Jimmy Golden, Mike Stolle, Jerry Stubb, David Schulz, Bob Horton Jr. and Dick Slater, who are going to come to work for me in 1977. And, you know, those guys, I'd, I I was with a lot of these guys. In the old Florida territory uh, back in the day, where I started basically, one of the first territories I ever worked in, stayed there for four years. Even though there wasn't much difference in our ages, you know, I felt a strong responsibility as an owner to protect my wrestlers from anything that pushed them in the wrong direction. Uh, You know, and I wasn't a perfect guy, don't claim to be, never did claim to be, but uh, I certainly tried to keep my crew out of trouble as much as I could. And I was lucky to have some seasoned veterans in this crew. and and all these early crews in Southeastern, guys that were straight shooters, real role models, uh, like Bob Armstrong, Tora Tanaka, uh, Don Carson, uh, Ron Wright, the great Mephisto, Frankie Kane was a great guy. I mean, uh, you know, Louis Tillette, the Von Steiger brothers. Uh, This particular crew in 1976 has a lot of guys that are older guys, that are good role models for the young guys in those crews. And I was extremely surprised So, in December of 1976 when one of the guys in my crew tells me some bad news. Uh, And I was not, however, that much surprised uh, since the person he told me about was in one of those Australian crews of 1971 uh, on my first trip to Australia. So I'd been unhappy with the performance of this guy, this particular person, since his arrival. I'd had prior experience with him because we worked together in the nineteen early 1970s in the Florida Territory. He was a much better worker back then, which was just three or four years earlier, uh, in that Florida crew. I couldn't figure out why his work had dropped off so badly when he arrived in Southeastern. But after hearing this news, it, it made sense to me, uh, obviously. So I'm not going to name this, Russer, right, because, you know, I never actually saw him do anything wrong. And out of respect for others that may have problems beyond their control, like this guy had, I mean, I just don't feel comfortable with just coming out and saying, Here, here's who it was, you know, I was already making plans to replace him before I got the bad news. He was just not able to do what he'd been able to do when I knew him back in Florida in, in, the, in the early days. More importantly, I couldn't afford to take a chance on his being a part of my Southeastern company and, and him be able to lead someone else uh, in this company, some of the young guys that persuade him to head in the wrong direction. I, I just didn't want any part of that. So so I'm between a rock and a hard place here. Uh, I got to do something I really don't want to do. and. Uh, And it really, really bothered me. Uh, He was a good guy, but he just lost his way. And and a lot of people do that. A lot of us do that. I felt sorry for his problem, but I didn't know anything, nothing that that I could do to advise him or any help that I could get him or where to go to find it. I mean, it was simply another day in time back in those days before all owners were forced to deal with this. You know, it was it was not something that happened in your territory. Back in that time frame. So I asked him to come to my apartment in Knoxville, where I live. And I was living alone at the time. I was divorced at this point. And uh, we sat down. We had a beer. And we talked about old times. You know, I, I felt I had to let him know how much I cared about him. And uh, and I cared about his future. And, you know, I, I wanted to talk about that part of it before we even got to the real subject matter. I felt like I owed him that, you know. When I dropped the bomb, uh, he was honest about his problem, and I admired him for, for that. He, he told me the truth right up front, you know, and and he understood my concern for the number of young guys I had working in my company and how dangerous his problem could be for them and, and their futures.
0: Interesting. You know? so, can, I, can I ask you one thing, and maybe you can answer or maybe not, and, and you said you were 28 years old, but it was this person older than you? Yes so yep. did did it make it any more difficult to sit down because was it was he someone that you had looked up to in the past
1: yes he was he was someone that i had worked with uh when i was just getting started and he was a he was a uh very inexperienced veteran and uh you know he he helped me and uh and i and i felt i owed him something for that and uh you know, yes, he was an older guy and, uh, you know, he was, he was just, he was in a bad spot he, and, and a lot of guys got there, uh, right. you know, you, you, I didn't really blame him for it. Uh, I, I felt sorry for him in, in, in lots of respects. And, uh, and, and were
0: you surprised that he was, he was just really cool and understanding of your position?
1: Yes. Yes, I was. I kind of expected I was going to get a little bit of uh, blowback from this, and you right. know, he was going to tell me he was going to talk differently than he did. But it was not that. It was not that way at all, though, right? Not at all. He was a gentleman about it. Right. Uh, he was strong about it. I got a problem. It
0: still took a lot of fortitude on your part to sit down with this person, who you maybe once looked up to, and to say, "Hey, look, I- I'm the owner of this company,
1: but." Yeah, uh, but he's he, he's one of my people. Yeah. He, he, I, I got feelings for him. He's in my crew because I respect him. Uh, I respect his ability to be in the ring. I respect the type of person he was. It, it basically boiled down, Dave, was one of the most difficult conversations I ever had with a wrestler. It was really, really dirt. It, it, it bothered me. Uh, yeah. And it was only three weeks before Christmas, and he knew as well as I did uh, what was going to happen here? He knew he was going to get fired or wow. get his notices. We used to call it in the wrestling business. We didn't say you got fired; you got your notice, right. and that meant basically you got fired. You got moved on. Yeah, so, but he had to appreciate at
0: least how you were approaching him uh, yeah, as professionally as you did.
1: Yes, I, you know, and, and I was sympathetic towards what was going on, and uh, he yeah. had he been in a lot of other territories with older. Uh, more mature promoters, the guys who had been around, they'd have probably talked differently to him than I did. And I think he appreciated the way I handled it. In the end of this, I think he really did. Uh, wow. These type of con- circumstances normally called for a two week notice. I mean, you know, this is, this is a bad thing in your territory. Uh, or at least I felt that way. And, you know, I would have felt like, Hey, I should just give him a two week notice. But, uh, you know, he'd been trying to, Trying his best since he'd been in the territory. But obviously, what he was doing was affecting his performance. So I took that into consideration. I told him that I had no spot for him after the show of January twenty third, 1977, which was seven weeks later. I gave him a long, long uh, notice. And he was very appreciative of it. And uh, and he thanked me for giving him plenty of time to find him another territory to go to work in. And uh, at the end of all this, Dave, we hugged each other. He walked to the door with me, and uh, and we hugged each other. We thankfully departed as friends, as, as we'd always been. We might have been involved in one of the most uh, brutal businesses on earth in the ring, but wrestling was also a sport that developed great respect for one another outside the ring. I mean, you know, we, we had to do things in the ring that were pretty darn tough. Uh, but, uh, you know, outside the ring, uh, we had a lot of respect for each other uh, because we all had to do the same stuff. We maintained a good relationship, me and him, during the following seven weeks. Even We worked against each other many times with no problem, and we had some very good matches together. In that seven-week period before he actually left. Now, I found these types of situations to be the most difficult of all things in the wrestling business. And like I said, it kind of it hurt me. It it really hurt me greatly to have to give guys a notice. So <laughs> the uh, you're probably going to you're going to think this is kind of strange, but I brought my brother back into the territory about in this time frame, and I kind of gave him a job booking with me. Uh, after this experience, because I knew that booking's going to give him an opportunity to be more than just a wrestler after he gets old and he can't wrestle anymore. He can book till he's 100 years old, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it was going to give him an opportunity to enhance his income. Bookers get paid pretty good money uh, long after they can't wrestle anymore. So to be honest with you, man, this also gave me a way to avoid these difficult and sad experiences. I had that day of giving guys a notice, and I, I knew I could help Rob to better provide for his family. But selfishly, and I got to be honest, I told him, "Rob, you're going to have to, <laughs> you're going to have to handle one job for me, and that's giving notices. <laughs> it's a distasteful job, and uh, you know that's one of the reasons I'm going to have you working with me." And he stepped up. He said, "Yep, I'll take care of it, Ron. Uh, you don't have to do it." And another reason I put him in the position kind of like a co-booker with me is because I was also getting into a better financial position in my life during this time frame. And I didn't have to work matches every night anymore. And his booking with me is going to provide me with more time off as Southeastern continued to grow. It actually opened the door to my dream of having a second territory. So Rob did a super job for me. So good that later on, he became a great booker, not just for me, uh, but for Jerry Jarrett in the Memphis Territory. Mm-hmm. He became a booker every other year in southeastern Pensacola once we went down there. He even went to work for Jim Barnett as a booker in Georgia Championship Wrestling. So, wow. uh, you know, he had he had good experiences out of it, and uh, yeah. and it worked out well for both me and my brother.
0: When you walked that person to the door and you had just given him notice, as you say, and he walked out the door and you closed the door behind him. That had to be a huge load off your, off your shoulders. Yeah. You, had you been thinking about this and worrying about this for days?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. As soon as I heard the news, I was like, wow, I, I've got to handle this. What about, yeah. how am yeah. I going to do this? You know, as a 28 year old guy and you're dealing with an older guy, uh, you know, uh, and, and just it's part of owning the company. It's just part yeah. of owning the company. And, uh, And you grow up fast when you own a company. You grow up fast when you have to. Uh, And you you learn to to handle these things. Uh, Later on, I gave this job. uh, When Rob wasn't booking uh, in southeastern Pensacola, in that Pensacola area down there, uh, Bob and I worked together. And it was always Bob's job. (laughs) The same deal. You know, when somebody needed to be let go. I would tell Bob and I never, I I guess this first experience really turned me sour on it and I never uh, tackled it again.
0: Um, Interesting. Did this wrestler that you gave the notice to, did he ever come back to work for you again? Did you encounter him again down the
1: road? Anything like that? Uh, No, he never did. Uh, But he did continue wrestling in the business. And a couple of years later, uh, he got both shot and stabbed by fans. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> he had great heat. He was very good at what he did. But uh, to, just to tell you, uh, I guess to finalize the story here is a uh, he he died uh, of an overdose of Oxycontin oh uh, three years later in California in
0: 1980. Oh wow, wow! Can you can you say was it uh, was it pills all along? Was that the thing?
1: Well, I think uh, you know so far as I was told that's that's yeah. that's what I was told his problem was. Uh you well. know it could have been more than that I'm not aware of. But uh you know uh, it, he it's funny that he obviously never ever was able to overcome his his problem. And uh that's really sad.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Well, wow, that's a great story Ron. It sounds like being the owner of a, a wrestling company was not an an easy job obviously. All right, so are we going to hear about the Friday night, December third, nineteen seventy six card? What's the deal on that?
1: Oh man, you're right on top of it, Dave. Kind of <laughs> like a wrestler with an Oklahoma ride.
0: Uh, wait, <laughs> Oklahoma ride is that? Is, has that got something to do with horses?
1: <laughs> man, no, not really, Dave. I shouldn't have thrown that on you, man. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's an amateur wrestling move, uh, you know. But it, but when you get the Oklahoma ride on the guy, you've got him <laughs> under control. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all
0: right. Uh, I'm into the control part. I think. All right. So, so tell us about Friday, December third, nineteen seventy six. Let let's go back in time.
1: All right, man. So you know this card. Uh, you know it, it's going to have no less than four Cadillac matches on it, man. It's got uh, Rip Smith going up against the Great Mephisto in one of those. Tor Tanaka's going to wrestle against Louis Tillet. In the second tournament match of the night, uh, Ron Wright's going to face off against Big Bad John. Don Canoodles were, wrestled against the, the new gladiator Jim Jim Dalton, and these two had wrestled the week before in the tournament match, and uh, Carnoodle had won with the sleeper hold. So this final tournament night of the match of that night, which was a return match, and it had a special stipulation to it that the only way you could win this match was by sleeper hole, since both of those guys used the sleeper hole for a finish. That's a pretty unusual deal. They've wrestled once, and uh, Canoodle got the win. Now they're wrestling again, and they can only win the match by sleeper. So the next match was a non-title match. Jimmy Golden had a new partner <laughs> after Mike Stallings had lost the loser loser of the fall match from the week before that tornado tag against the Bond Tiger Brothers. On Thanksgiving night, then Jimmy Golden found himself a new partner. And this time, Jimmy was going to go from a good partner to a great one, because Bob Armstrong's going to be his partner in Southeastern wrestling on the following Friday night. So, main event was a return match for the Southeastern Championship. Ronnie Garvin going to be managed by Big Bad John again, and I'm going to be facing him again my second time to wrestle against him. But I'm going to have a manager of my own for this one. And it's going to be the big boy from, from, from Asia, man, Tor Tanaka is going to be standing in my corner.
0: Another awesome card. All right. But you've made these TV shows famous. So you got to tell us about the TV show. That was six days before this event, right?
1: Yeah. Yep. We're going to go to Saturday, November 27th. We're going to go drop back into November. This is going to be two days after that Thursday night, First Thanksgiving show in Knoxville's history. It's going to be, uh, obviously, the last Saturday in November. So guess what that is, Dave? It's rating period. Yeah, well, <laughs> We're still yeah. in. This is the last week of that ratings period. So this show has got to rock just like the, all the others have in November. And uh, it, this show's got it all. It's pretty much got it all. Uh, it's got some videos from that big, huge Thanksgiving night crowd. Uh, where we turned away maybe as many people as got into the building. And, uh, you know, it's got a surprise guest for fans. They're not going to expect this one. And it's got a TV championship match live between me and Ronnie Garvin to see who's going to be the new champion after Big Bad John had forfeited the title to me two weeks before. So when the regular Southeastern show opening ended uh, at the beginning of this show, this show opened up. We went through this the opening, and I don't know if fans have ever seen this opening. A lot of them may not, but it was a caricature opening in which the music and the wrestlers were actually wrestling, and the, the screen, the, the wrestlers went round and round in the screen. It was really a pretty big-time opening for wrestling show back in those days, and as soon as that show ended, this show's Starts with the end of last week's program. And if you remember in last week's program at the end of the show, all hell broke loose. Uh, the last minute of the show was just yeah. wild, right? Yeah. It was the deal which uh, we used to end up starting this show by replaying the last minute of last week's show where Big Bad John and Ronnie Garvin had just finished their interview. The TV trophies sitting on the desk. They're about to leave the desk at the end of the show. And uh, Big Bad John decides he's going to steal the TV trophy and take it with him. And, uh, right, yeah. So when that replay finished uh, about what happened and in the, in the fight that ensued and we went off the air with Les uh, saying, uh, we got to get out of this, we got to get out of this, and boom, we were out of it. Uh, that's what the fans got to see in the first minute of this show. And as soon as that replay finished, there sits Tanaka and I at the set with Les the TV trophy's right back on the desk in the exact same spot it was when all that stuff started a week ago, and Les began by announcing that today on this TV, South Eastern fans were going to crown a new TV champion. The crowd popped, just as they had at the end of the last show. He thanked Tanaka and I for coming out at the close of the show the week before and uh, saving the trophy, you know, and, uh, and he wished me luck in today's TV trophy match, and Tanaka and I left the to set together. Uh, so he went to the ring for the first match of the day. I went back to the dressing room. And he was against a man that was almost his size, a young star that was on his way up. And the guy's name was Phil Hickerson. He's going to become a great team with a guy named Dennis Condry. Uh, and both those guys will make a name for themselves very soon In uh, in the late 70s, not in just Southeastern, but in a lot of other territories as well. Uh, Hickerson sold Tanaka unbelievable that day Uh, because I think Hickerson was just scared of Tanaka for one thing too. And Tanaka was about to to take the win when Big Bad John and Garvin, they appear in the studio. And, uh, you know, they're just taunting Tanaka. Uh, The studio crowd erupted as soon as those two uh, came into the studio. And I was in a dressing room. I saw the monitor. So I went right into the studio myself. They were acting like they were going to attack Tanaka. But uh, as soon as Tanaka finished off Hickerson, I jumped in the ring. I raised Tanaka's hand and uh, Big Bad John and Garvin. They were still in the studio. They weren't running, but, uh, you know, they weren't attacking either. And the crowd was, I mean, they were electric. Even though the show had just started, they they were really into, hey, we're going to see something right away. Like they ended the last show, basically. And the referee left the ring and he backed Garvin and John off toward the set. Me and Tanaka left the studio through another exit. They joined Les at the set and they watched the Southeastern Championship match from two nights earlier between Garvin and I on Thanksgiving night uh, for the Southeastern Heavyweight Championship. And that building, gosh, in these videos was totally electric like that crowd at the end of the last show, TV show. It was just amazing, uh, the crowd noise in the building uh, in this video. It showed Garvin set me up for his win, and he went up to on the top rope to end the match like he'd been every match he'd had practically in Southeastern. And uh, he jumped off just like he always did, uh, but this time he didn't hit me with the knee from the top rope. I moved away, and he landed hard on his right knee. Had to hurt him. And, uh, we both got up slowly and, uh, he had his back to me when we got up and I just quickly, man, stepped right in behind him. He was perfect. He was bent over. Uh, he was holding his leg and, uh, I put the old fuller leg lock on his bad leg <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> and, uh, right in the middle of the ring. I mean, <laughs> the, this one was over, uh, you know, for sure. And the crowd was just going wild in that building. It was crazy. How so, could
0: you let Garvin jump off the top rope. And not hit your 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 throat as a cushion. I mean, what what were you thinking, Ron? Come on.
1: Oh man, I was thinking he ain't gonna get there. <laughs> he ain't getting there no more ever. Right. You know? I mean, I've been through a hell of a lot of pain because of that.
0: No doubt. Yeah. So
1: uh, so uh, yeah, he jumped off, uh, but about halfway down, I just rolled right out from underneath him, and oh boy, he had nothing. He couldn't stop himself. Right. He had that knee. Ready to land in my throat. And instead, boy, he hit some pretty hard steel underneath that ring. Yeah. It was a whole different game for him. Uh, So, you know, uh, so I got him into my hole. This is over, man. Uh, Fans all know it. Everybody knows it. But uh, Big Bad John got other plans and he rolled up into the ring and he stomped me in the face with his big old size 20 foot and his big old boots that he wore. And uh, him and Garvin started to put the boots to me, both of them, and the referee disqualified Garvin. The bell started ringing, and pandemoniums, uh, you know, it's a, everything is breaking down in the ring, and uh, Garvin has uh, basically uh, lost the match by being disqualified. But Big Bad John's watching this, and he doesn't describe it in the same way that I just did. <laughs> So he's watching the same thing uh, that, that I watched and that I, every, all these fans watched uh, that happened. And and so when he's watching it and I move out of the way and Garvin hits on his knee and I put the toehold on him in the middle of the ring and I've got the match won, he, <laughs> he comes up running up in the ring and Les says, what what are you doing there? What are you doing there, John? And he goes, uh, uh, Ron Fuller's got that illegal toehold on my my boy, (laughs) Ronnie Garvin. He says, that hole's banned in 20 states because he's broke legs everywhere with it. The Uh only reason I got in the ring was because the referee's stupid enough that he didn't know the hole was illegal. And he he said, and then I looked down and 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 my boot was dirty. And he said, I had to clean the bottom of my boot off on his face. (laughs) So, you know. He had a pretty good answer for it, but it wasn't exactly what people were watching on the screen. So in the video, about the time that he he cleans his boot off on my face, uh, Tanaka arrives at the ringside. And we both started to to clean the ring of both John and Garvin. and, (laughs) And Les asked John at that point when they hit the floor and they started almost running toward the dressing room. Les asked John. Why, 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 and where are you guys running to, man? Where, where are you going, John? Uh-huh. And uh, John said, uh, "You know, we'd been so tired of hearing all those hillbilly scream." He said, "Our ears were hurting," and he said, "We, we, we needed to get back to the dressing room and get to some silence as quick as we could."
0: Sounds legit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you can imagine what the fans thought of that one day.
0: <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they questioned that just just a little bit. There could have been a few boos heard in the studio, no doubt.
1: i <laughs> <laughs> well, to say the least. You know I mean, the uh, show started off pretty good. Uh, they, they've already got Big John running away from the set, too, like he ran the night before, a couple of nights before. So Tanaka nice. and I, we returned to the set for the first interview. And I told Les and the fans how happy I was to have the big Japanese monster in my corner as my manager next Friday night. You know, after I'd been stomped around a little bit and had had Big John's foot in my face, you know, and uh, and then I said, you know, uh, how horrified Big John had to be, knowing that across the ring, standing behind my ring post, is going to be that big old Japanese monster, you know, and uh, he's just going to be standing there waiting on Big John to do something wrong. Get in the ring this time, John. So uh, I said I'd be afraid if I was garving in this match because. His manager, Garvin's manager, was famous for his, his yellow streak down his back, and that next Friday night, Garvin might find himself dealing with two-on-one. And because <laughs> if Big John runs the dressing room, it'll be me and Tanaka on Garvin. So they got a big <laughs> pop out of the studio crowd. They loved that. So when I got up to leave for the first time ever since Tanaka had been there, he showed some real personality. He stopped me. He he put his hand in my chest, and he he pantomimed that he had a wrestling belt in his hand, and he was wrapping it around his waist. You know, he pantomimed that I was going to win. I was going to wear the championship belt the next week, right? And then he looked at the camera, and he had a big old huge smile on his face because I could see the monitor, and he and he made a chopping motion with his hand, and he said in a way that was almost understandable, he said, "Be back, John." You know? <laughs> Like here's what I got for you, boy. You know, and the studio popped. They they, they for the first time. I mean, Tanaka got his own pop. You know, <laughs> and I grabbed him in and gave him a big hug, boy. And the studio popped again. It was like wow, think of a way to start the show. Then the next match, it really set the studio on fire. And This is my surprise for the fans that day. So two heel job boys were in the ring, got introduced, and suddenly. Man, here pops out of that dressing room, Bob Armstrong and Jimmy Golden. And Nobody expected Bob Armstrong to be back. Uh, you know, they hadn't seen the card yet, and they didn't know what the matches were. And uh, wow, what a pop he got, man, and Jimmy as well. You know, so can you imagine what the fans thought of that one day? You know, uh, I'll uh, give yeah. them another surprise.
0: I mean, it sounds like you pulled out all the stops for this one. Uh, of course, it, it's at the end of the rating period or the last week. So, I mean, there's no doubt, but how old were those two guys, Bob and Jimmy? How old were they at this point?
1: Oh, Jimmy's, Jimmy's uh, two years younger than me. Jimmy's about 26 and Bob is, uh, Bob's about seven years older than me. You know, he's about 35, but he looked like he was 25. Yeah. You know, and I mean, uh, gosh, then that just, that that just lit the studio up. I mean, wow. Nobody expected to see him there out of nowhere. And you're right. It was rating period. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And I wanted to do everything I could in that day to really, really have a tremendous end to the November rating period of 1976. Oh. And, uh, boy, having Armstrong and Golden in there, boy, they didn't disappoint me. Oh, they good. were all over that ring, man. Yes. I am all over those two <laughs> opponents. And, uh, boy, they had their own Oklahoma ride. I mean, they they were in total control, man. And at the end of that match, they did something I'd never seen in a tag match ever before. They were all four in the ring, and the crowd was going crazy, the studio audience. And when one of their opponents ended up uh, taking a bump, and he stood up near the ropes, and and Bob grabbed Jimmy by his back, put his hand behind his neck, kind of. And Jimmy leaned back, like, into his hand. And Bob grabbed the front of Jimmy's tight, and Jimmy threw his feet in the air, and Bob jerked him up about, about shoulder height in a prone position, and he threw him across the ring, feet first like a dart. <laughs> and, and, and Jimmy caught, caught that, that job jobber, that boy jobber in the face and sent that kid flying through the roadside on the floor. I was like, wow. what in the heck was that? And uh, about that same time, the other guy on the opposite side of the ring got up, and uh, they just did the same thing. They repeated it again. Jimmy covered him. The uh, boy, the crowd popped, and the crowd went wild. And so did I, and so did all the guys in the production crew upstairs in the control room. They were all watching it too, and they were like, "Wow, what the hell was that?" You know. So for a tag team, I got to thinking about it. You know, it made perfect sense. I mean, you got Bob Armstrong, the big muscle man. And he's yeah. using his partner as a weapon. <laughs> so, wow. No, <laughs> you know, that-, that wasn't going to be the last time they and fans got to see that. They're going to do that to the Fonz Tigers the following Friday night, too. <laughs> so wow. is this, it is was this a great start that, to a TV show.
0: Is it something that Bob had innovated and worked with Jimmy on? Or how did that come about? I
1: don't have any idea. You know, I think they've put it together in the dressing room. I mean, you know, they there's the first time they think that they ever worked as a tag team combination. And they sat down and said, we need to do something never been done. And, uh, you know, I can just see the thought process going down and Bob going to Jimmy, uh, you know, uh, let me throw you. <laughs> let me, uh, you like to drop kick. Uh, why don't I, instead of you having to go to the top rope and drop kick, let me just uh, pick you up and throw you in a drop kick. Wow. Uh, it was great whatever however they figured it out it was a it was certainly a big boost to that television show
0: almost like a human slingshot that sounds awesome all right hey I think we're at a good spot to take a break let's do that and we'll continue this stud cast will continue in moments right here stay with us. Fans all over the world are raving about Super Studcast number 35. Many fans knew that Rod's knowledge of professional wrestling history was immense. But after hearing the four-hour question and answer interactive event, they've been completely blown away. Even his guests have excelled with their questions. Find out for yourself at Tnstud.com or Patreon.com/slash studcast. This unique podcast offers the one-of-a-kind ability to hear the questions, answers, and conversations between Rod and fans. From all around the world, the interaction, respect, and information exchange makes this one of the best Super Studcasts ever. Hear it now at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. For only $2.99, it's the best deal in wrestling. David Summers, we're back. The second half of this Studcast continues here with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Don't forget tnstud.com. tnstud.com is where you start your Christmas shopping for the ultimate wrestling fan on your list, do it now while you've still got time to order what you want from the site and get it in time for Christmas. Autograph photos of the stud, t-shirts in black and blue, autograph copies of Ron's new novel, Brutus, an incredible and historical DVD collection loaded with matches and interviews. That's the fun part from the continental and southeastern wrestling days. TNstud.com. That's TNstud.com. It's the stud's home on the world wide web order now and get everything in time for Christmas. But really seriously, you better get on that pretty soon and we'll get it to you as fast as we can. All right, back to the show and our man Ron is saddled up. So what is next Ron? on that? And and I think you were going to wrap up something else about that great TV
1: show. Yeah. So Les and I uh, discussed the fact that this is a TV championship match. We completely changed the format in this show from what it normally was. Since there was no TV title match two weeks earlier when I'm supposed to wrestle Big Bad John, he was the TV champion, uh, and he forfeited the trophy to me, uh, there really wasn't a match and no TV match. So I felt like we needed to give fans something extra today that they'd never had on television before. Uh, we didn't do something more than a normal 10-minute TV match. Uh, We needed to give them, in my opinion, that day. And Les and I talked about it. I think I described it as a true main event right Mm -hmm. on television. Well, the personality profile was usually started. That's when we came back uh, after our break. Les opened up. Instead of being on the profile set, he opened up on the main set. And he announced that the TV title match would start then, and it would go until the show ended if need be. They would cut away from the match only two times for commercials before the end of the show, that during the commercials they would still be recording the match in case that, that there was a win during that time, and if that happened, the end of the match would be shown back immediately following the commercials so everyone could see how the finish of the match was even if they were in a commercial when it happened. He added, too, that there was also a standby match ready to go in case the match ended early. So this gave a special significance to this match. It also allowed Ronnie and I to work a regular match on television with lots of wrestling in it and plenty of time to paint the picture of a championship match deserved. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, this was a championship match, and and we're going to give them a championship match. Uh, and you could tell it was going to get over by the reaction of the studio. As soon as Les finished this, uh, they rang the bell and they introduced the TV trophy and uh, brought it to the ring and they, they this thing got to rolling. Fans were totally involved in this match from the beginning to the end, and we had more than thirty minutes of total time left in the show when I went to the ring. So I knew that we're going to be going a while, and uh, we're going to we're going to tear this crowd down and we're going to tear all those fans at home down too. We're going to give them something better than they ever imagined. So the match lasted uh, until less than three minutes remained in the show. So it was pretty close to a 30-minute match. And uh, as there was two breaks in there, they went to commercial. When they came back, we were still at it. So uh, Ronnie had started to tape his thumb. Uh, It's something that he'd done since he's arrived in Southeastern. He would tape his right thumb, and he used it to jab his opponents in the throat. When he was trying to get heat, uh, and it was a cheap way of getting heat. He would get the uh, referees behind him somehow, and then he would jab you in the throat with his thumb. And uh, it got great heat, and it was also a significant because that was leading up to his finish. I mean, he basically pulverized your throat during the patch, and then he jumped in it on the end. <laughs> you know? So the throat was his focus, and and it had been from day one. Uh, and I always uh, select a photo for each studcast, and uh, and I put it on um, my website, dnstud.com. It's and if you go onto that website and you go to the studcast page, every studcast episode has a photo that goes with it. And I, I I'd, I'd, I'd like for everybody to check this one out uh, because uh, it's it's a pretty remarkable shot from 44 years ago, and it says everything about what southeastern was like back in the day. It's basically a shot of me and Ronnie, and uh, you know I'm getting the thumb to the throat, and uh, uh, it's a it's a pretty remarkable picture. So you nice. know, fans, uh, when they listen to this, uh, go and take a look at that uh, stud dot com. Uh, click on the stud page, studcast page, and, and take a look at this photo. It's a uh, pretty I, remarkable. I'm
0: amazed that you still have. You're saying you have a photo for the studcast on tnstud.com dot com. A photo of Garvin's taped up thumb that he used as a weapon, right? Yeah. Yeah. You never yeah. threw anything away. Did you, Rod?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I saved a whole lot of things, you know, and thank goodness I saved this because, uh, it, it really, this is a great shot. I mean, he's he's in the process of letting me have it. So I think fans will really, really enjoy it. Uh, and then for those of you who get your stud cast, uh, from the t- website, Uh, You're familiar with this, and for those that get your your stud cast from somewhere else, if you go to that website at tnstud.com, I think you'll find some of these photos very interesting. So I certainly uh, did, uh, you know, uh, from 44 years ago, I hung on to that picture, and uh, so now let's ring the bell and let's start this uh, TV championship match on November 27, 1976. It started, obviously, slowly and cautiously. Uh, we did a whole lot of chain rousing, not just uh getting holes but moving from hold to hold and uh, reversals and uh, exchanged a lot of holes I worked his leg uh during the course of the match because my finish involved his legs uh you know, and he worked my throat a lot because uh, his finish involved uh you know uh, taking care getting somebody down and uh, eventually jumping in their throat, so the match had the studio crowd from the very beginning. The longer it went, the more tension that built with it and the greater the response it started happening for every move. So we went past this first commercial break uh, and before I began uh, to get to Ronnie uh, and uh, working on his leg. And I went for the toll a couple of times uh, right after that first commercial break and the crowd exploded, man. They thought it was over. Ronnie ended up crawling out of the ring a couple of times to big bad John, who was standing there in the corner because he's the manager. Uh, And about the same time as all that went down, uh, Tanaka came out of the dressing room and he came around and stood in my corner, even though he wasn't supposed to be there. So now the crowd just kept everything we did just enhanced this match. It just went from starting out good to finishing unbelievable. So, with about five minutes left in the match, uh, Ronnie really began to use his thumb a lot. And he took over the match, and he tried, obviously, for several pins, but I was able to kick out. And then other wrestlers uh, began to come into the studio, one at a time. And they they just uh, came into the studio and stood back up against the wall, and Bob Armstrong came in. And then a minute later, Jimmy Golden came in, and then Ron Wright, and finally Carnoodle came in. And, And they started cheering me on. Uh, You know, in the studio crowd, I mean, this studio is beginning to rock. The cameras getting shots of the matches, and then they get these shots occasionally of the guys standing along the wall that are cheering me on. And then here comes the heel. Uh, You know, the Von Steigers came out, and Tillette came out, Mephisto came out, Gladiator came out. The other dressing room,
0: and they're all cheering the heel. Did it feel like a lumberjack match?
1: Yeah, it's like this, this thing is uh, turning into something much more than just a match, you know yeah, I mean? Yeah, no, ju- like, no doubt. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and it just, the match was on fire. I mean, the match was already great, but uh, with this element of these guys coming out and getting involved in it too, it just really put the thing on fire. So but with about five minutes left, Garvin really began to use his thumb. He took over the match. And uh, he went for several pins, but I kept kicking out on him. And then uh, John and Tanaka were slapping their hands on the apron. The the fans were all on their feet. Uh, Garvin finally suplexed me in the middle of the ring. He set me up for his jump off the top rope. He climbed to the top rope. Uh, Everyone in the studio was screaming, including the wrestlers around the wall. (laughs) And they, and they began to move closer to the ring. They didn't stay along the wall, but at this point, they think it's it's it's, it's going to be over here. And uh, all these wrestlers that were back along the wall now, they're they're almost up to on the ring themselves, kind of like a lumberjack match. And boy, Garvin sailed from that top rope, and uh, just like he had so many times, he disappeared up into those rafters. <laughs> and boy, I saw him coming down at me out of the dark, man. <laughs> He was up higher than the studio lights, uh, but I was ready for it. And I, I raised one leg and, and it caught him under the chin. <laughs> and, it, and it sent him flying backwards into the turnbuckles. <laughs> and he hung there for a few seconds. He, he was hurt and he fell forward face first. And I was still laying there. And I know he was trying to fall across my body, but I rolled out of the way. So he laid there face first on the mat and I was laying beside him on my back and the referee started the 10 count, uh, which meant basically that there's not going to be a winner to this. If, if one of us can't get to our feet here. Oh. And so the studio at this point, that, that was just unbelievable in there. I mean, the, the, the excitement was just, uh, oh, wow. It gave me goosebumps uh, wrestlers at, had moved all of them. They were within within feet of the ring at this point, They're screaming as loud as possible, as the, like, screaming as loud as the fans, and you couldn't hear Les at all on the set. And when <laughs> I watch this back, Les is screaming, and you can't hear what he's saying about what's going on. So, so I tried to get up as Garvin was trying to get up, and uh, uh, he got to his feet just a little bit before me, and he came for me. Uh, and I was about halfway up, and he he grabbed me again. He wrapped his arm around my head, and he was setting me up for another big suplex. And uh, I found myself in the perfect position for a jackknife or an old small package, as people called it, man. One of the greatest moves in all of wrestling. Yeah. And by golly, he walked right into it. He had already put his hand over the back of my head around, wrapped his hand around my head, which left my arm wrapped around his head. I just rolled him forward, and I crotched his legs, and you couldn't hear anything in that building. Uh, not even the referee's three count, and he was just inches away, nor the bell after the three count. Uh, the crowd was just everybody. It sounded like an explosion went off in the studio at the end of it. Uh, the baby faces all hit the ring, and they pulled me up on my feet, man, and was hugging me and congratulating me, and the heel drug Garvin out of the ring. <laughs> And uh, the bell was still ringing. Boy, the crowd was still going crazy. You couldn't hear the bell at all. It was it was just pandemonium in there. And, you know, it might well have been the biggest pop in Southeastern TV history. And Les closed the show uh, with the ring full, still full of wrestlers. They were holding my hand in the air. Phil Rainey got in the ring, and he had that big old huge tall TV trophy. It was taller than he was. And he handed me the trophy, and the show closed. Women off the air with a ring full of wrestlers and me raising that TV trophy.
0: Man, that had to have been a fantastic night to be, or, or afternoon to be in the TV studio. That is just awesome. What a great TV show, especially during the rating period, particularly. All right. I can't wait to hear the numbers when the rating book comes in. So where to now, Ron, what's up now?
1: Well, let's talk about the the results of that following Friday night show. Uh, Rip Smith won the first of the four Cadillac tournament matches that night. Tor Tanaka beat Louis Tillette. Ron Wright put a good old Tennessee dog whooping on Big Bad John. (laughs) No, he did his thing. And uh, Don Curnoodle and the Gladiator wrestled to a draw. And that must win by sleeper match. And uh, both men received a loss in the tournament for having a draw. But uh, it was a great match. Bob Armstrong and Jimmy Golan won their first ever tag match against the Von Steiger brothers. And they used that same maneuver that they'd done on TV, uh, with Bob propelling old Jimmy, like a dart man across the ring. into the two Von Steigers, and, uh, they got themselves another win. Uh, there was no winner in my match with, uh, Garvin because, uh, Tanaka ended up having to come down, uh, Uh, He was already there, and him and Big Bad John got involved at the end of it, and both Garvin and I got disqualified.
0: Wow, man, that's an awesome stud cast right there. Okay, so things were really popping in Southeastern back then. But in the meantime, let's uh, get settled in, get our cold drink, take a seat under the learning tree. What were the questions again, and who's setting them up for you, Ron?
1: Uh, The learning tree question today uh, comes from a gentleman named uh, Chuck McKinney. And uh, Chuck asked, other than Knoxville, what was your most profitable spot show and your favorite spot show in southeastern Knoxville? So let's start uh, and answer his question, uh, the part about the most profitable spot show first. And uh, that was probably Hazard, Kentucky. Uh, we talked about Hazard quite a bit in last Studcast. Uh, uh, we ran it actually on that Friday night after the Thanksgiving show in Knoxville. Uh, it had just about 4,000 fans, uh, and uh, the average ticket price of about 350 per ticket that Friday night after Thanksgiving. The gross house was $14,000, and because it was a municipal building, I only had to pay 10% of the gross for rent which was more in line with what more buildings were, right? So that's about half of what I was paying schools to get into the high school gyms and into the football stadiums. I end up paying of that $14,000, $1,400 for the building for rent. And after paying my wrestlers and referees their 30%, which was a little over $4,000, ended up coming home with about $8,000 profit. So it was pretty easy for me to answer this part of the question for you, Uh Mr. McKinney. Uh, Hazard, Kentucky was a very profitable town. So let's take a look at my favorite spot show in Southeastern. My favorite spot show in Southeastern was, of all places, Harlan, Kentucky. It just happened to also be my least profitable spot show. We talked about the most profitable one. I made less money in Harlan than any of my spot shows, but it was my favorite place to work. Let's talk first about why, you know, and it was the why was it the least profitable spot show? I mean, uh, it didn't make sense, but it was the only school that we had in southeastern Knoxville that got more than 20 percent of the gross gate for the use of their gym or their stadium. And Harlan's coach, when I went to set the deal up, he was pretty darn tough to deal with. And he just demanded he wouldn't let me get in his school unless he got 30% for his football team. And he and all the money was going to his football team. So, boy, they did extremely well for themselves in Harlan over that four years that we ran there. Uh, when I left Knoxville in 1979, they had the biggest stadium had the best lighted football field they must have uh-huh. had the finest dressing rooms probably in the state of Kentucky man <laughs> that school really had some facilities so I'm going to use one night in particular the night my father went with me to explain why Harlan was the least profitable spot show so um, my dad's going with me and uh, the night he goes with me we drew about 3,300 fans it more than sold out you know, we got more than what the capacity of the building was that night in there. Average picket price there was about three dollars a ticket. So the gross house was almost ten thousand ninety nine hundred. The school got thirty percent of that, which meant they got two thousand nine hundred and seventy dollars. Wow. Almost three thousand dollars. That meant that I paid almost three times as much for the building, the gym in Harlan as I did for the five thousand. 000- <laughs> Municipal seat hazard building. So, uh, obviously, it was the most expensive uh, spot show in Southeastern wrestling. Wow. So, now I'm going to finish this and I'm going to tell a little story here and I'm going to talk about why it was my favorite spot show. This is one of the reasons uh, it it was my favorite spot show because you never had any idea when you went to Harlan, Kentucky, what was going to happen that night. It had a long-running reputation as an extremely dangerous city to wrestle in, especially if you were healed. Its reputation was renowned across the southern United States because it earned it. <laughs> it they had earned that reputation <laughs> there. Those fans were, were rabid, man. Uh, they, they had probably had more riots in that city than anywhere in the world. Wow. You know, especially for the number of times they had matches. So my father wrestled and managed for me uh, many times in Knoxville up to this point. And uh, he only asked me one time ever to book him in a spot show in the five years that I ran Southeastern Knoxville. He said he wanted to work just one time in maybe the wildest atmosphere in wrestling, Harlan, Kentucky. He said that little coal mining town, (laughs) about 3,000 people in eastern Kentucky, in the mountains of eastern Kentucky there. It was so feared by heels this town that one of the biggest, baddest, meanest heels I ever knew made me hire a full time Knoxville policeman to go to Harlan with him every time it ran. Every other Saturday night, he had to take this policeman with him to watch his back. And that heel was the Mongolian Stomper. I mean uh-huh. Stomper's scared. <laughs> wow. You know? You know the other people are, you know, so yeah. So before it was over, Stomper had me. Put that policeman on salary to go with him to every town that he went to, because uh, they were all we were having riots and hall play, all kinds of places. But it all started with with Harlan. So the night I took my father there in 1977, we're in a tag team match. We're against Dick Steinborn, who had turned the heel in that year, and he'd removed his mask. He was no longer the Gladiator. He wasn't a babyface now. He was a heel. Uh, Steinborn's partner that night was a Mongolian stomper, and their manager this night I'm talking about was Ron Wright, who had turned back heel after many years as a babyface in Southeast. Oh. So, Ron Wright, as well liked as he was as a babyface, was a truly heat-seeking missile as a natural heel. <laughs> <laughs> God, and when you combine the Mongolian stomper's heat with Ron Wright's heat. That combination was destined to create riots. So, And that's what happened on this particular night in Harlem. So my father, when we got there, spent about 30 minutes in the dressing room before the match, setting up high spots with Dick Steinborn and the Stomper to use in that match.
0: All right. Uh, what is a, a high spot? That sounds like an inside term. What, what's a high spot?
1: A high spot was kind of, it was an action move uh, designed to make a baby face look good. Uh, uh, by doing something unexpected with the heels that made the crowd pop, you know, usually it had to do with movement off the rope. She bounced off the rope, something like that. And then uh, the baby face does something kind of cute and uh, the heels take a bump and the uh, crowd pops. My dad had probably four or five of those high spots uh, set up uh, <laughs> before we even went to the ring. Right. So, you know, in, in most cities, he would have really shined early in the match with those high spots. But Harlan wasn't like most cities, so, so he wanted to start the match. You know, he wanted to get his high spot glory in early. You know, so, <laughs> so so and I tried to talk him out of it. You know, we went to the ring first, and then you know he said, "I'll start the match. I'm gonna start the match." And I said, oh, you know, Dad, maybe maybe not." You know, and and uh, while we're discussing this, we we watch at the back of the building. The heels come out of the dressing room. And there's a brigade of policemen escorting them to the ring and they're throwing stuff at them and they're, the fans are pushing the cops out back and they're, they're shoving them here and there and and dad watches it with me. He stands there in amazement and he finally looks over at me and he says uh, he says, "Damn, are, are they even going to get to the ring?" <laughs> <laughs> so I got to hit my face and giggle about it, you know. <laughs> You know, it was the reaction every wrestler had that had never seen an Harley Kentucky crowd. You know, <laughs> this crowd was, uh, they were especially fired up because uh, this is the main event. So uh, right. so after the heel struggled just to get to the ring in one piece, my dad agreed with me. He says, man, maybe you ought to start the match. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And a riot began as soon as Steinborn took me by the hair, 30 seconds into the match. I mean, we didn't do anything. And he grabbed me by the hair and jerked me down on the mat. That was it. That's all it took. Uh, It was one of those riots that kind of began slowly and then exploded at the end. You know, so uh, as soon as he snatched my hair and I went down on the mat, a couple of guys from two different sides of the building charged the ring. Uh, Here they uh, come. You know, I was like, wow, here they come, (laughs) I can imagine what my dad's thinking. He said, whoa, what in the heck? You know, so Steinborn <laughs> let me go. He let me go. He saw one of them coming through the ropes, and he kicked him in the face. And the guy went out on the floor. Wow. Stomp grabbed the other one on the far side of the ring. And uh, yeah. and he did a lot worse than kick him in the face. Uh, so my dad still standing on the apron waiting for a tag. I mean, heck, yeah, uh, with the matches two minutes in or less. And he, he was pretty sharp. He could see the beginning and the end of this match right then, you know, like, Oh gosh, this is going to get worse maybe. And he started screaming real loud. He says, I haven't done my high spots yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I was, he was, he wasn't ever going to get to do them either. because <laughs> This one was out of control. So the first two guys are Now they're laying on the gym floor bleeding men, and, uh, they're soon replaced by ten other people, guys out of the crowd, and the policemen now are. They're they're running up to the ring and they're trying to drag them off the apron and, and they, you know, and by the time they get the, trying to get those ten dudes set back, here comes twenty more, and uh, so the ring began to fill up. And, you know, fans <laughs> are in the ring, and there's one lone policeman gets <laughs> into the ring himself, a cop, right? Wow. So the policeman. He draws his gun. What? He, yeah, he, he takes his gun out. Not only does he take his gun out, but he gets Dick Steinborn, shoved it back into the corner, into the turnbuckles, and uh, and he, he takes his gun and he sticks it in his stomach. And he screams at him loud enough that I'm close enough I can hear him. He says, don't move or I'll blow your guts out.
0: Are you kidding?
1: Wow. Yeah, <laughs> So, yeah, you didn't know whether the cops were part of the crowd or not. I mean, the cops <laughs> didn't, care the cops didn't yeah. like the heels either. So, you know, it was a yeah. dangerous, dangerous place to work. Unbelievable. So he screams at it. Yeah, don't move. I'm going to blow your, duck, your guts out. And uh, Stein Warren was too busy to comply because uh, there's, a, there's a fan down there trying to grab his feet, and he's stomping him on the head. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, So he's just going to stomping this guy and the cop's standing there with his gun in his belly and the dad's still screaming. I can hear him back there. I ain't done my spots yet. (laughs) So so Ron Wright's out there on the floor, but boy, he's got to fight his way in the ring, man. He's safe on the floor, you know? So he fights his way up inside the ring. Like there's going to be a place of safety in the ring for him. The ring's full of people too. You know? So it was like pandemonium, uh, like like it was most weeks in Harlem. So, oh, yeah. so I did the only thing I could do to help Steinborn. Right? I, I pushed the cop. He still had his gun in Steinborn's belly. I kind of pushed the cop the, aside, and I hit Steinborn with a hard forearm across the chest. Boy, it popped, pow, real loud. And the cop was so scared, he dropped his gun on the mat right down at Dickie's feet. Oh, my God. <laughs> <And> Dickie, <laughs> Dickie's without thinking, man. I guess he figured, uh, you know, I got to do, do something with that gun. He he put his foot on it, and he kicked it out into the crowd. Oh
0: my God. The cop's this gun. Like right? Something from
1: a movie. Holy oh, God. yeah, yeah, and a bad movie, man. At that, <laughs> yeah. you know? So, you know, so I didn't know what to do. I looked at Dick, and Dick looked at me, and I, and I said, sorry, Dick, but that's it for me. <laughs> so I hit the floor. I was going to the dressing room, man. Somebody out there has got a gun now. So, yeah. And uh, and and Dick completely understood. So him and the stomper and right and the referee, they all kind of got the, gathered up uh, at the edge of the ring and they hit the floor and the policemen got around them and they did their best to protect them back toward the dressing room. And I turned around and I'm headed to the dressing room and I look at my dad standing in the middle of the ring full of spectators. And he's still screaming, I ain't done my spots yet. <laughs> <laughs> the heels are headed to the dressing room. This is over, man. So, so I made the two hour trip back to Knoxville with him and boy, he was nonstop all the way back to Knoxville complaining. man. you know, he goes, I can't believe I rode all the way from over the far side of Tennessee <laughs> to Knoxville and all the way up here to this town. And a." I never got in the ring. I never did anything. You know, he said, I never saw a riot start two minutes into a match, you know? Wow. And I just kept telling him, you know, I just every time he blurted out, I'd say, uh, welcome to Harlan dad.
0: <laughs> Holy cow. That just sounds unbelievable. Did any wrestlers or fans get hurt? And did your father ever go back to Harlan?
1: <laughs> no, no, no wrestlers. Thank goodness that night got hurt. And, uh, yeah, but but I'm not sure about wrestling fans. Uh, you know, back in those days, uh, fans uh, didn't say anything when they got hurt. You know, you, it wasn't like uh, ten years later when they all had lawyers and they they started right. the lawsuits. Yeah. You know, uh, you didn't know who got hurt. No, my dad never went back to Harlem. But boy, from then on, we must. Uh, I don't know how many laughs we had. Uh, together uh, before he passed in 1996 about uh, that match in Harlem. Uh, I used to say, Dad, tell me about your big match in Harlem. <laughs> 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 so uh, it would always get it going. Uh, so uh, one more thing happened that, that riot, Dave, that I guess I ought to tell you about a little bit anyway.
0: What else could it be? What what was it, Stud?
1: Well, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, unbelievable as that part of it sound, this one may even top it. Ron Wright had a two-engine airplane. He flew it into Harlem. He landed the, the the airport was on the mountaintop. and uh, <laughs> and when he went to the airport to get his plane, the fans had shoved that sucker off the mountaintop, and oh, uh, oh. and it was burning at the bottom of the mountain. Oh so, but Dave, uh, that's another story for another time.
0: Holy cow. I'll bet it is. All right. That is awesome, Ron. These stud casts are amazing to be a part of, no doubt about it. All right. Listen, two sites are available for fans. Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud and author, Ron Fuller Welch. All you need to do is like those pages and follow him. And you are in with a legend on Twitter and Instagram. It's Ron Fuller Welch on both. Super Studcast number 35, the fantastic 4-hour interactive Ask the Stud question and answer show is an absolute total old school history lesson. It's another record breaker at tnstud.com or patreon.com/studcast only 2.99. It's the best deal in wrestling no doubt about it.
1: All right, so where are we riding next week, Ron? Well, we're getting closer and closer to the end of that tremendous year for Southeastern of 1976. 1977 is just on the horizon, man, and the 77 is going to be even bigger. I mean, it's, it, it's just unbelievable what's about to happen. Uh, next studcast, uh, we're going to be in the second week of December 1976. My brother Rob's coming home, he's returning full time to Southeastern. Bob Armstrong and Jimmy Golden are going to get their first Southeastern tag title shots at the Von Steiger's belts, which they have just about dominated and owned since they came to Southeastern. Uh, We're going to have another, obviously, today's training and another great learning tree. And uh, I'll be preparing for the annual year in review of Southeastern's uh, Rise to Prominence. So I want to thank all my regular listeners out there, everybody, and uh, welcome those of you that may be taking your first ride with us today. And we're getting a lot of that. We're we're growing so fast with our audience. And please take care of yourselves out there and others during these tough times of COVID and uh, may God bless us all.
0: Another amazing job, Ron. This is David Summers thanking everybody once again for listening and reminding you that Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.